listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Here's a picture of my boys, and if you want to know what I'm like, you can look at my two sons. This is Kingston and Axel, and Axel just left with the fourth and fifth graders, but you can look at them. We share characteristics. We all have squinty eyes and kind of big bags under our eyes, and I get those from my dad, and he got those from his dad, and people are like, man, are you tired? I'm like, no, I just, that's the way I was born. I've just got these huge bags under my eyes, and I always look tired, and they're always dark, and, and then later today, I'll have, because I said this, I'll have some advertisements on Facebook, you know, or online, and it'll be like, here's how you can get rid of those dark circles. They don't work. They're genetic, but, but we share certain traits. Both of my boys are uh, relatively, relatively tall for their age and relatively skinny. We have long legs. Even last night, we were talking about, I said, man, y'all got some long legs, boys, and uh, they stood up, and they were like, our legs are almost as long as yours. I'm like, yeah, you're all legs. That's what you are. Uh, we share a lot of things. We eat chips the same way. I can't stand when somebody crunches into a chip. And so they picked up, you break a chip while it's still in the bag or on the plate, and then you put it in your mouth, you know, each one. And so we share these traits. And as they continue, to, and you're like, bro, I don't want to, I'm glad I'm not related to you. I, me too. That's fine. I understand. Like, we're all a little strange. But if you want to know what I'm like, you can look at my kids. And when you look at my kids, you're like, they didn't just come up with this whole chip-breaking thing themselves. They got it from some other OCD person in their family, and they got it from me. I got it from my dad. I got it from, you know, from his parents. And so when we look at the scriptures, if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Because through Jesus, we see what God is like, and we see what the Father is like. It's identity. And so what we're going to see this morning about Jesus is that he is our prophet, priest, and king. That's the identity of Christ that we see all throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the New Testament, we see the Old Testament pointing to Jesus through the prophets, through the priests, and through the kings. And Jesus is the fulfillment in his identity for us to go to as our prophet, priest, and king. So there's some identity markers, some statements. The first one is this, and I put this up on the screen in, in two different ways, but, but first, your identity determines your biography. In other words, who you are determines how you live. The world, the culture, the enemy, Satan, the devil, Diablos, he wants to work this backwards. And doesn't our culture say this? How you live determines who you are. Because the culture would ask us this question. Maybe you consider this for yourself, and I would invite you to answer this question even now. If I had fill in the blank, then my life would be so much better. Then my life would be fulfilled. If I just had whatever it is, maybe kids, more kids, a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a new car or a new house or better skills or a different job, or the chance to retire, more money in the bank, whatever that is. What we're doing is we're saying, I want to live with this, and then my identity would then be fulfilled. We're going to see this morning that the devil comes to Christ, and he attacks his identity. And if he can destroy Christ's identity as our Savior, then he destroys our salvation. We know he's not going to do that. So that's the good news for us this morning. But here's where this hits home for us is that the devil wants to destroy our identity in Christ. So he wants to destroy Christ's identity as God's son and as fully God, as prophet, priest, and king. And for us, 
He wants to destroy our identity in Christ. Something does not have to be true for it to devastate your life. And so the devil comes to Christ, and he tells all these lies to him in the same way that he tells those same lies to us. But we're going to see this morning that we can run to Christ as our only hope. So Luke chapter 4, Jeff just read this for us, all 44 verses. This morning, um, my youngest, Kingston, who you saw up on the screen, he came to me, brought his Bible to me, and he reads about a chapter of the Bible almost every day that I take him to school. And uh, usually it's either what we're going through here on Sunday mornings or what he's going through back there with his class. And so uh, he came to me this morning. He said, Dad, and he he knew we were in Luke chapter 4. He said, when you get through preaching the Bible, when you preach the whole thing through, what are you going to preach then? And he's six. And so, and uh, and I I said, well, buddy, as soon as we get through preaching the whole Bible, we're just going to start over at the beginning. He said, oh, okay. And then ran off. (laughs) And so for us here at South Point, we just preach the Bible. And as soon as we get done with it, if you're still around, and if I'm still around, and we're all still alive, we'll just start back over at the beginning, okay? So that's why we go through big chunks. So Luke chapter 4. We saw here, the first image that we have is Jesus as priest. So I said he's prophet, priest, and king, and that's the typical vernacular that we use for, for Christ because it's just easy to say and it rolls off the tongue. But the first image that we see here in these first 13s, in, verse, in verses 1 through 13, is that Jesus is our priest. Everybody say, Jesus is our priest. Yeah, so we, we have this. So he begins here. So look at verse number one with me, chapter four. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. He, he was baptized last week. We saw that in, uh, in, by John, John the Baptist, chapter three. And we see that, that Christ is baptized, that he's, he grows as a child. So he's full of the Spirit. He goes from the Jordan. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, it doesn't, we have three temptations here of Christ, But that doesn't mean that there were only three temptations by the devil. These were probably the three most prominent ones, or these were probably the three that Satan could really hang his hat on. But it says that he was tempted almost that whole time. And so I would imagine we have three here, but there may have been hundreds a day that Jesus had to endure. But the first thing that we see here, notice the the, the distinction, the dichotomy between the, the different powers that are at play. We see the power of the Holy Spirit. We see the power of the devil. We see the sovereign work and the will of God, and we see here the weakness of mankind. If you look back at chapter 3, verse number 38, we see this guy named Adam, the very first man, right? And this is where all of this sin hinges on. But we see, remember Adam, when he was in the garden, when he was tempted, there was plenty of provision. But we see Christ here as he's tempted in the wilderness, there's desolation. And so we have these, this compare and contrast with the first Adam and the second Adam coming into play, into picture. And so we have Jesus in the wilderness. And the first temptation hits. And the question we have to be asking ourselves at this point, even though Adam failed back in the garden, will Jesus succeed? Or will Satan be able to derail the cosmic plan of God? Because if Jesus fails right here, then we're all doomed. The first temptation We see the beginning in verse number three. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The the first thing, and I want us to walk away from each one of these temptations with this picture of faith. And so how do we take this from Christ and say, okay, what does faith look look like? The first one is this, that faith prefers to rely on God rather than satisfy its own need. Faith prefers to rely on God than satisfy its own need. And we see Christ here. Now, would it have been wrong for him to turn a stone into bread? No. 
There's nothing wrong with eating bread. Could Jesus have done that? Yes. Would it have been a sin in any other situation for him to do that? No, it would not have been a sin for him to do that. But the issue here is one of trusting the plan of the Father. So he was led out by the Spirit into this wilderness, and that was the plan that God the Father had for him. So Christ remained obedient to that plan. He references here, and Jesus answered him, verse number four, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. This is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, when the people of God are wandering around in the desert for how many years? A really common number that we have, right? 40. This, this number 40, we see it where else? Noah's Ark. We see the, the folks here wandering around. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, and this is one of those big prominent numbers that we see throughout. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as the people are wandering around the desert, they're like, God, we need, some, we need some food. Are you going to provide for us? What does God do? He says, here's some manna. So the picture here that, that Jesus conjures up is God providing for his people. And how do the people respond? Thank you so much. We're just going to keep eating this manna day in and day out. No. Instead of responding with faith, they respond with grumbling. And they respond by trying to take that manna and store it up for themselves when God told them, I'm going to provide for you day in and day out. So we see Christ here responding to this temptation by saying, I'm going to rely on the power of the Spirit. I'm going to follow the plan of God. So faith relies on God to satisfy rather than provide for its own need. The second temptation, verse number five, and the devil took him up and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Then if, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The, the second way that faith responds and the way you should respond similar to Christ here, is that faith prefers worshiping God to ruling the world. Because Satan comes to him and says, look at all these things you can have. And for most of us, wouldn't we say, man, I really deserve nicer clothes. I deserve a nicer home. I deserve better kids. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. But that's not the response of faith. The response of faith is we are going to rely on the provision of God and him only. And that's how Christ responds here. He essentially says, doesn't it matter more to worship, the, to worship God than to worship the world? That's what Christ's response is. Shouldn't I be more willing to worship the creator of the universe than the things that he has created? Brothers and sisters, the moment that you begin to believe the lies of the devil, the moment that you begin to think, man, could these promises actually come true? You have already begun losing the war. So as he comes along, I think you really do deserve this. Here's the plan that God has, but look at all these good things that you've done. Look at how hard you work. Don't rely on those things. All of these other items, all of these other accolades, all of these other successes are going to create for you a new identity. Those are the promises of the devil. In the moment that we say, huh, I wonder if those things could be true. We've already begun losing the battle. Christ does not do that. Temptation number three, verse number nine, he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, this is Satan speaking, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now notice, Satan here, he takes this scripture out of context, but the devil knows the Bible, right? Now he pulls this and, and we'd be like, oh wait, Deuteronomy. Some of y'all are like, due to what? Due to who? I don't know if I should read the Bible. I don't even know where that book is. Is that Old Testament? Is that part of the Apocrypha? I have no idea. And so I would, I would say, we should know the Bible. 
And so when the devil even brings good things along for us, we have to know what is the context of that. Because here, here's what he says. And this, uh, he takes this out to Deuteronomy, but he says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. This comes from Psalm chapter 91. Here he's, the, the point of that passage is not, hey, put God to the test. And whatever you do, God's going to take care of you. The point of Psalm chapter 91 is that we should be trusting God for his divine protection and provision. And so the third thing that we see here is that faith prefers to trust God rather than to test God. So the devil takes this scripture out of context. And how does Christ respond? Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, here's the, here's the thing about this third temptation. This jumping from the pinnacle and, not, and nothing happening to him, that would have been great for Christ's ministry. He would have been on the cover of magazines. He would have been front page on the Facebook feed. There would have been articles about him everywhere. If we have this guy named Jesus who had just been baptized, he's like, hey, I'm here. Boom, watch this. I can jump from hundreds of feet up in the air. Nothing happens to me. You're like, well, why didn't Jesus do that? He wants every- That's not the plan of God. That was not his purpose. So even what in our minds seems like really good things, if it's not the plan of God, if it's not according to his word, according to his purposes, those things are not good things. Those things are bad things. What Satan was offering Christ here, he was offering him. And eventually, if you look at all these things, we know that Christ eventually is not just able to eat food at the end of these 40 days, but eventually he breaks bread and feeds thousands of people. We see here that that Christ eventually is exalted, but what Satan is offering is exaltation without crucifixion. And we know that in order for our salvation to be secure, the crucifixion was necessary. What here Satan is offering is a crown without a cross. And notice what Christ says. That's not the plan of the Father. The plan of the Father is for me to suffer and to die for y'all. But then if you notice in verse number 13, after he had ended his his temptations, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, this is, this is an ominous tone because we know that, that Satan is going to pop back up later in this book. In chapter 22, we really see him coming in behind Judas' betrayal. Judas' betrayal was led by the devil. And then we see the guards who were led by the devil. It's behind every single part of Christ's crucifixion. Now, what's the point of this passage? Because we talked here about faith. But is the point of this passage for me to tell you, okay, here's what you need to do in the times of temptation. And it's not. Now, this is how we should be faithfully relying and responding to Christ. But this passage is not primarily about how do we fight temptation day in and day out. And a lot of guys take it out of context. But but here's the point of this passage. The reason that Luke begins with, with Christ's earthly power in the middle of this is to point to the identity of Christ. It's to say not, okay, here's how you as a human being can fight temptation. But instead, when you are in the middle of this battle, run to Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who has defeated the tempter. He is the one who has defeated the temptation. So don't try to fight it in and of your own power. Not, not even taking, okay, let me see if I can find some Bible verses to that. Run to Jesus first. Take the scripture and run to the ones that this points to. So the point of this passage is not to say, hey, let me give you some tips and tricks. The point of this passage is to say, run to Christ. Run to Jesus. For some of us this morning, the, the devil is whispering in your mind, man, what, what if? 
Maybe you do deserve that. It's not that big of a deal. I was talking to somebody before the service, and we were talking about how our wives don't understand how people can sin so blatantly. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 sin is bad. We shouldn't do it. I mean, this other guy were like, yeah, sin is bad, so how do you cover it up? How, how, do, you, how do you hide those things? And so for some of us, that's your proclivity is to say, you know, let me see if I can, you know what, devil, you might be right. For some of you, the devil's not just whispering in your ear, but for some of y'all, for some of us this morning, we're on the battlefield of sin and we're bleeding out. The point of this passage is to say to run to Christ wherever you are, because worship is what got you into trouble and worship will get you out. Worship is what got you into trouble. Whatever sin you're dealing with, it's because something looked better than finding satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. But because of this, because Christ is our great high priest, he has defeated temptation and the tempter for us, and so we can run and find our identity anew in him. For some of us, we, the sin is the hook, and on that hook is this bait. And the devil says, hey, just have this little bit of bait, but we don't see that hook underneath. We understand that imagery, right? Repentance is not taking the bait off of the hook so we can enjoy that sin. Repentance is running away from that as fast as you can and running to Christ. We talked about that last week. John the Baptist says, repent, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This battle that we see here in the wilderness is eventually won on Calvary. So run to Christ. He is victorious. I know sometimes in our church culture, in this church culture, we, now I was talking to a brother about this a few weeks ago, but we don't talk about victory a whole lot. And we have that, oh man, I'm just a worm. I'm just, I'm just trash. I'm just a sinner. But can I tell you something? If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your identity is that of Christ. Amen? That means your identity is no more in being a victim. Your identity is no more in being that of a sinner. Your identity in light of the Father is in Christ, which means we are victorious because we are in Christ. So run to that victory. Run away from this damnation that we so easily want to fall back into. Run to Christ who is our victor. That's where your identity lies. And that's really good news for us this morning. And so we can say, man, oh yeah, are, are we all sinners? Yes, absolutely. But even in the light of the Father, he doesn't see us as sinners. He sees us as saints. And so let's live out of that identity rather than walking back into this identity that we've been redeemed from. The second image that we see here, not just of Christ being priest, but the second one is that Christ is a prophet. So we pick up in verse number uh, 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went out about him through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So we see Jesus here as the prophet. Now, look at verse number 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, that would be Saturday then, but for us, we know that through church history, that, that day when the Lord's... Uh, people have gathered us now on Sundays. That's why we're here this morning. But I would say this. Don't be so quick to avoid what was so customary for Christ to attend. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, if something else comes up on a Sunday, it's like, oh, well, you know what? I was there two weeks ago. So you know what? I guess I got to go do that thing. Whatever that thing is. 
And so I'm going to avoid the gathering of God's people. Oh, yeah, but now you're getting a little legalistic. Can I tell you something about legalism? That Christ came not to get rid of the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And if Christ thought it was important to go to the gathering of God's people week in and week out, I would say that's pretty important for us. And so if if your natural tendency is to shirk your responsibility here to the gathering of God's people at least once a month, once or twice a month, if you're showing, ah, I'll see if I can get over there this Sunday if, if I don't feel terrible when I, or if I don't have like a, you know, mild symptoms or if I just don't have a headache or whatever, I, whatever it is. But I would say, do not neglect the gathering of God's people. Just don't. It, that's for your own soul. I don't get paid more if we have more bodies in the pews. I haven't looked at our Sunday morning attendance in months. I just, I haven't. And so I, are, are those things important to me? Yeah, they're important because y'all are important to me. It's not important for my own ego or for my own level of success, but it's important to me because I want the people of God to be built up as this family. It's important for me to see my family this afternoon because they're my family. I need them. They need me. When I'm away from my family, it hurts. When you're away from this family, it hurts us. And brother or sister, it hurts you as well. So we see here this was customary for Christ to be, and by the way, this was probably not some blowing and going, you know, this is not uh, the, the best, biggest church. God has been silent for almost 500 years at this point. This is Nazareth, some little podunk city. It's not like they have the best preacher with the biggest podcast with all the live streams happening right here in Nazareth. But Jesus still said, you know what? That's my local body, so I'm going to go there. It wasn't because he loved it. It wasn't because the music was banging. It was not because it was just so attractive. It's because being with the people of God was necessary for a spirit and a soul. And I thought our music was very good this morning. So anyway, I'm glad I'm here. It was this custom, so we went to the synagogue. Notice what he does. And he stood up to read. So Christ goes, he stands to read. Now sometimes um, what we don't need is more tips or tricks for spiritual growth. Sometimes we don't even need counseling. Sometimes we don't need more Christian books. Sometimes we just need the Bible. And we fill that void with so many other things. All those things are good things. Uh, We're trying to, I mean, I'm working with some other guys trying to encourage a counseling ministry here because we need that. I I love reading Christian books. People are like, what kind of books do you read? Just theology books. Well, you need to read novels. That's fine. I don't. I, I, I just, I don't have time for that. I barely have time to read the books that I want to read. I've got a stack of books back here on my desk that's probably 10 feet tall with, with theology books that I want to read. But none of those things compared to the truth of Scripture. And so the reason that we read Scripture, the reason that we study Scripture and preach Scripture is because just like Christ, we think it's important not just to hear the preached word, but also to figure out how do we act? How do we respond to that? That's why we encourage you to be part of a life group and part of a DNA group. How is the word taking root in your heart? And from there, we read really good books. From there, we learn how to grow with tips and tricks of spiritual growth. And from there, we're able to engage with, with biblical counseling. But notice what Christ does. Verse number 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll. This is probably really long, a really long parchment. And he found the place where this was written. Now notice he, he knew exactly where he wanted to go. And as Jesus preaches through the Old Testament, it's almost like he's preaching through his autobiography. But he says this in verse number 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the very year of the Lord's favor. Now, he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. If you have some little footnotes or some little letters right there in your Bible, you can see where he gets that from. But here's why that's important. is because in Isaiah chapter 59, what begins happening is you see Isaiah talking about the people of Israel. And he says, yo, people of Israel, you're in sin. And people are like, man, we are sinners. We are completely hopeless. But then they turn, they confess, and they repent to God. Then in chapter 60, chapter 60 through 62, we see the Messiah coming in as this redeemer, as this restoration of Israel's fortune. And so in these three chapters, in response to the hopelessness of the people, we have this picture of the Messiah, and Jesus opens to right smack dab in the middle of that proclamation of this Savior who's going to bring good news, and he says, that's me. I've arrived. So the context of Isaiah 61 is, not just, hey, you know what, let me see. Uh, hey, Jesus, uh, new preacher in town, let me see. No, he says, I want to go and I want to preach Isaiah 61 on purpose. Because as a prophet, I am the one true ultimate prophet. He says here, if you notice, look at this, at this passage. He says, I'm the hope for the world. He's come to proclaim good news to the who? First of all, to the poor. And these could be poor because of sin. They could be um, destitute because of situations of the world. There's no context given there. But he says, I've come to the poor. Come to those in need. He says, I've come to the captives. Look right there in the middle of verse 18. Literally, that means the prisoners of war. I've come to the captives. He says, I've recovered sight to the blind. Now, that could be a literal blind like we see in the book of Mark, like blind Bartimaeus. But it also could be these are the blind because they've been blinded by the God of this age, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The last thing he says there, he's come to set at liberty those who are oppressed, or literally those who are abused. And here's what he's come to do. Again, this points to Jesus as our prophet. Look what he's come to do. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's what would happen every seven years is they would have this year of jubilee. And so the folks who were either in ridiculous debt or who were slaves would be freed in that seventh year. And that's the year of jubilee. And that's what Isaiah 61 is pointing to. He's saying, here's this one who is bringing freedom to those who are poor, to those who are oppressed, to those who are blind. And Jesus is saying, for those who are farthest from me, for those who are in most need of salvation, both physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological salvation. I've come to save your soul, and I've come to restore all things to myself. And so Jesus, notice in verse number 21. Or look at verse number 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, <laughs> I mean, like my dad doesn't like the phrase Jesus juke, I guess because it's not in the Bible. Um, but, so, but imagine, we have Jesus Christ showing up. And he says, you know what? I'm going to open this psalm to Isaiah chapter 61. I'm going to read this. He sits down. Mic drop. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Nobody says anything. They're like, what? what? Like, you're, you're saying Isaiah's talking about this Messiah who's coming? And you're saying, you're saying you're that salvation? You're saying you're the prophet? Verse 21. And he began to say to them, I imagine he said this very slowly. He's like, all right, let me clarify some of this for y'all, all right? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, Jesus Christ has arrived. He's hit the scene. 
And this Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. So at first the folks are like, man, we're really glad to hear that. But notice what happens next. Jesus says, well, here's what's probably going to happen is you're not going to think very highly of me. Because notice then, at first they were gracious, but then at the end of verse number 22, so just like a verse later, and they said, wait, is this not Joseph's son? What they're saying is, wait, this, I mean, he's saying he's God's son, but isn't this Joseph's son? They begin questioning Christ's identity. Boom, right there. Right after he reads Isaiah 61, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm God's son. They're like, wait, I thought you were Joseph's son. Now, Jesus responds to them and says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. In other words, he's like, look, don't, don't be pressuring me just to make all of your hopes and dreams come true. Don't, don't be thinking that just because we're from the same hometown, you have some sort of one leg up on everybody else around the world. He says, because my mission has not changed. I'm here for the world. I've come to bring restoration to Israel. But we're going to see a little bit later at the very end of the chapter that Christ has come for those who are furthest from him, not for those who think they're the closest because they're the most religious. Familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard that? That's why most wrecks, most automobile accidents happen close to your home within like two miles because you get really familiar with that and boom, run into somebody. That's why most home accidents, if you slip and fall in your house, it's probably going to happen in your bathroom. Usually the most lit place, lit like real lighting, not like lit, but like uh, it's the most lighted place. There's mirrors, you know, on the walls and like you're familiar with your bathroom, but that familiarity, it oftentimes tricks you. That's where most home accidents happen. And so here he says, don't, don't think you know me just because you think I'm the son of Joseph. I'm not just that person. And he has these two examples here. He talks about Elijah and Elisha. And here's the point of that. He says, Christ came to save those who are far from me, to those who would have faith in me, not because of those who thought they knew so much or had so much. And he talks here about Elijah going to this widow who had nothing. But how does she respond to Elijah's offering of salvation to her, of life? She responds with faith. You can go to 1 Kings and read about that. Then he has this second story about Naaman, a guy who we would think of as Bill Gates. The dude's loaded. He's got billions. And what does Elisha do to him? Naaman goes and says, hey, I've got this leprosy. I want to be healed. Elisha says, okay, I'm not, I'm not even going to talk to you. And Naaman's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'll give your church millions and billions of dollars. Elisha's like, no, you don't understand. I don't, I don't really care about your money. Uh, I'm more concerned with the grace and the power of God. And so Naaman's like, okay, well, tell me what to do. Elisha's like, ah, I mean, I guess you can go wash in the river, you know, a few times and see what happens. And Naaman's like, he doesn't say, okay, well, I'm going to rely on my money instead, on my prosperity. But Naaman responds with faith. And because of his faith, because of his obedience, Naaman is healed. And so the reason that Jesus uses these stories right here for these people who are most familiar with them, what he's saying is, I didn't come for those who think they know me. I didn't come for the most religious people. I didn't come for those with the most money. I came for those who were actually going to have faith, who were going to respond in obedience. Here's what I want us to see this morning, church, from the fact that Jesus is our prophet, is that being familiar with Jesus without being in love with him will prove dangerous. We see the people here in Nazareth, in his very hometown, they were incredibly familiar with Jesus but they were not in love with him. 
And we're like, okay, well, how did they get this connection between Elijah and Elisha? Well, you can look down. And it says, verse number 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were all filled with wrath. Now, many of us have been raised in the church. I know I was. My dad's been a pastor my entire life for all 37 years of my existence. I understand the culture. I know the lingo. I know the way to dress. I know what to say, what not to say. Usually, I get in trouble sometimes, um, usually from my wife. You know, hey, how, how, you got any pros or cons, any feedback on my sermon this morning? Well, I don't think you should have mentioned that. Uh, almost every week, and I, I understand. So, But at the same time, I understand like, there are certain things you can or cannot say. Like there's, there are just things that are acceptable, not acceptable. But can I tell you something this morning? We can become so familiar with Jesus that we are not in love with him. We're more in love with the good things that he has to offer us, the things that we think that we deserve. So don't just come here week in, week out, because it's your routine. I want you to come here, and I want us to know more of Jesus. Look down. They're filled with wrath. Verse 29, Then they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could what? So they could kill him. So boom, just like that. He's like, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to save you. But I didn't come for those who are most religious, who are closest to me, who think they know me. I came for those who are in love with me. They didn't say, you know what? I'm going, we're going to repent of our knowledge of you. We're going to trade that in for love of you so we can experience this with you. They're like, no, I think we'd rather kill you. So they take him up. It, this, this is just foreshadowing of what's about to happen in just a few years when the crowds are yelling, crucify him, the one who came to save them. And we would say, man, this is not a good marketing plan. He should have just jumped off the pinnacle and like proven himself when he had the chance. But that's not the plan of God. Look in verse number 30. Now earlier, the people of Nazareth, they were looking for a miracle, right? Do something cool. Make some stuff disappear. Whatever you got to do. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. I think this is interesting because they're looking for a miracle, and he performs one. <laughs> but this is not the miracle they were looking for. By the way, Jesus never went back to his hometown. He never went back to Nazareth. And if you go there today, it is primarily a Muslim town. And so Jesus said, you know what? You don't like these prophets who are telling you the truth? There are folks in our body for years. We've been doing this for 15 years here as a church. And there are often times when folks are like, ah, you know what, that just, that just kind of set on my toes a little hard. I don't really appreciate the way you said that. That's a little too much. I, I don't think you should be telling folks to be there as often as they physically possibly can because it should be a priority. I, you know, that's, that's all interesting. Maybe that's good for you, but not for us. Can I tell you something, folks? Life is short. It's really short. I was looking in the mirror last night, and I realized how short it is. <laughs> Those bags in my eyes are drooping a little more. The circles are getting a little bit darker. My back is sore. I, I can barely, I feel like I can barely get out of bed sometimes. You feel that? Life is short. Don't let Christ pass through our midst. We are created in his image. He has given us a new identity to know him. And as we hear the truth proclaimed, 
may our response not be, yeah, but, but may we be responding in repentance. So we have already the picture of Christ as our priest. We see here the picture of Christ as our prophet. The last thing that we see is Jesus as our king. Jesus as our king. He begins in verse number 31, and he went down to Capernaum. Now, if you were kind of paying attention, when he was in Nazareth, the people said, hey, can you do for us here what you did in Capernaum? I don't know why Luke arranged this chapter this way. He didn't have chapters then. Those were added later. But I don't know why he arranged the story this way. But there's a pretty good chance that what we read at the very end actually happened before what we just read. Okay? And that's okay. Because we know that we talked about this at the very end of August. But Luke arranged this gospel in a variety of ways. But one of those ways was theologically. And so there's a good chance that verses 31 through 44 actually happened before the verses that we just read. 15 through 30. That's okay. Either way. We know that this happened. We know that this is true. This is the word of God. So however that happened, it's kind of interesting to consider. But we know that Jesus is eventually in Capernaum. So he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Now, Capernaum was right there by the, by the sea. It's at sea level. That's why it says he, he, went, he went down there. He was right there. So when we read the scriptures, these are literal words about the geography of the nation. So he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You ever watch like um, prosperity preachers on TV? I love when somebody's like, hey, have you, have you listened to this guy? I'm like, oh my word. Yeah, I've listened to that guy. <laughs> and that is, they're the ones saying, ah, <laughs> you know, the very end. But here we have the demon saying it, ironically enough. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is not Jesus showing up in some big tent revival saying, hey, bring all your demon-possessed folks to me. Hey, I'm going to heal these people. He's not selling tickets at the door. He's not trying to draw a crowd. He's just standing there preaching. And we, we see this demon-possessed person come up to him, and we see this demon begin talking to him. Can I tell you this morning, we, we've, we've talked about the devil for a few minutes. And as we talk about demons, I'm not going to go into this whole uh, theology, uh, this doctrine of demons, but demons are incredibly real. They're incredibly real. I was talking to someone about it this past week, and they were like, do you think there's more demonic activity that's happening around us than maybe we see? I said, probably so. But at the same time, we have three enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we as an American culture, we as South Point, for most of us in this room, we're so wrapped up in the world and in the flesh, we, the devil probably doesn't even have time to worry about us. And I could go into stories about traveling overseas and hearing things outside of my bedroom window, hearing these these. Um, these villages call up demons to inhabit their bodies and being thrown from one side of the, of, of the village to the other. Of somebody grabbing an AK-47 and shooting his family to death. Of, of the stories of people jumping into fires and not being burned. These things are all very real. But for most of us, we either write them off or we become obsessed with them. And I would encourage you, don't be obsessed with demons. I would also say, don't write them off. Because the power that we see here in Luke chapter 4 is incredibly real. And it never says anywhere that, okay, now we don't have to worry about demons anymore. So I would say, just be cautious as we see this. We know the tactics of the, of the devil now. And this is not some like, hey, make sure you, you never watch TV. Make sure you only go to your house and lock your doors and don't go outside and you know, don't, don't go to anywhere where there's a TV. Listen, but the tactics of the enemy are easily pervading our homes through what we fill, with our, fill our minds with. 
whether it's through cultural leaders, social media, Netflix. That's the world. And what did the devil already say to Jesus? He says, I've been given control of the world. And so I would encourage you to be on guard with your mind. We've just entered Halloween season, which is amazing. I had somebody last week say, my high school daughter isn't going to be at church on October 31st because she has to get ready. She has to make sure she's putting on her makeup and her costume to go trick-or-treating that night. And I said, well, that sounds like a parenting problem. And the person just smiled at me. I was just like, I don't think you understand. <laughs> and so I said, we, we value this culture. It's the number two most expensive holiday that our culture celebrates year in and year out behind Christmas. And so as we make light of all of these evil, demonic things, enter into that with trepidation. That's all I'm going to say on that. But demons are real. They're very powerful. Here's what they tell us. Some of y'all are here. They say that you are a failure. Some of you feel that. Their message is that you are not successful, that your identity must be found in and of yourself, that your life is not worth living, and that maybe you should take your own life. They tell you that you must look for satisfaction in and of yourself or something else. If you hear those things, that is the voice of the enemy. And for some of us, that's very real this morning. So be cautious. Notice here in verse number 34. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Notice what he says at the end of that verse. This is the demon talking. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even the demons recognize who Jesus is. And when we understand that Jesus here is talking about his kingship. He's saying, I am king over what you see and what you don't see. I'm king over the visible, tangible world, you in the flesh, and I'm king over the spirit realm. Here's what we know, is that we don't take sin seriously because we, don't take, because we do take the holiness of God lightly. We, what does the demon do right here? He says, I know who you are. You're the holy one of God. We don't take sin seriously because we take the holiness of God lightly. When we understand the holiness of God, it brings us to submission. It brings with it faith and trust and salvation. It brings sanctification through the power of the Spirit. It brings us into community. It sends us out on mission. So when you look at your life, is that what is characteristic of your life? Is submitting to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ? Or is it for your own kingdom? And I would say you might be taking your sin a little too lightly, friend. And that's probably because you are taking the holiness of God very lightly. The holiness of God calls us, compels us to live for him to go. Even the demon here recognizes that. But, but notice here, this holy one of God is not a profession of faith. It's a proclamation of truth. He doesn't say, you know what, the Holy One of God, yeah, and I have faith in you. So some of us, we, we say, I, I know, I know these things. I know about Jesus. Again, we're familiar with Jesus. I, I know, I know. 
You're saying these about demons. Hey, I know. You're saying this about Jesus. I know. I know that he's the priest. I know. I know that he's a prophet. I know that he's the king. I know that he's in charge of all things. I know he's called me to surrender my life. I, I know he's called me to go. I know he's called me to serve. I know he's called me to sacrifice. I know he's called me to give. I know he's called me to gather with God's people. I know these things. But can I tell you, there's a lot of people who are going to know a lot of stuff who are going to sink into the depths of hell because they have not experienced the forgiveness that is only offered in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, today I have brought salvation. And so I would plead with you, friend, to fall upon today the mercy of Christ alone. Today, before it is too late. Because when you see Jesus Christ face to face, he's not going to say, do you know about me? He's going to say, do I know you? The last thing we see here, and we see the demon obeys. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked him. He goes out, and Jesus cast out many more demons. We see right after that, uh, Jeff read this a few minutes ago, we see this fever. Jesus goes to Simon, probably Peter's mother-in-law's house, who was ill with a high fever. And I wanted to put a good mother-in-law joke here, but I can't. Because um, my wife is still here. Uh, my mother-in-law was, her, uh, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, well, here, take, take some pills. He doesn't say, I'm, I hope this works. No, Jesus steps in and he rebukes the fever and the fever leaves. But here's the question I have for us. As we see this fever who doesn't have a brain, who can't think, who's not cognizant, the fever obeys just like that. We see the demons here who are the arch enemy of God. They obey just like that. Are we more joyful and are we quicker to obey than even demons? Are we more joyful and quicker to obey than even a fever? who has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lastly, I said we get here in verse number 43. Look there with me. And he said to them, so Jesus does all these things and he leaves. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. What's the purpose that he sent for? To preach the good news to the poor, to the blind, to the outcast to those in most need. And so Jesus goes. And we know eventually, what does Jesus do? He sends. He sends his disciples. He sends the Holy Spirit. And he says, I've come to show up as the prophet, priest, and king. I've come to fulfill all prophecy. And then I'm going to send you as my people to the ends of the earth. And so we right here as a church, almost 2,000 years after seeing the story about Jesus in Luke chapter 4, we know that his mission has not ended. That's why it's important for us to run to him as our priest, we don't have to make any more sacrifices because Christ was sacrificed on our behalf. We don't have to look elsewhere for what satisfies because Christ has said, I am the prophet. I am the truth. I have fulfilled all things. So come and seek me. We know that he is the king over all creation. So find your satisfaction in him. This is not good news for those of us who think that we can earn God's favor. This is good news for us who know that we can find favor in God by repenting, by turning from all of our effort, from responding with faith. And so I would say the same way that Jesus said, today salvation has arrived. Friends, today may be the day when Christ comes back. I don't know. You know, I'm always torn on that. I kind of hope so. But then I'm like, ah, but I kind of want to do this too. You know? Like, I can't, I can't wait for that to happen. So Jesus, if you could just like chill out for two more weeks, that'd be awesome. I don't know what that looks like. I have no idea. But Christ is coming back, coming back again, and he's coming back soon. 
And so today, for those of y'all in the sound of my voice, repent of your sin, have faith in him. That's my prayer for us this morning, is that we would see and recognize and worship Jesus Christ as our perfect priest, our perfect prophet, our perfect king.